the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We'll hop around to a couple of different places for tonight's scripture readings. And then we'll read our catechism answers together. That's on page 10, the back of your blue hymnal. First Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, reading to verse 28. And then we'll hop over to Genesis chapter 3. We consider tonight the fall of man, the depravity of man, as we think about these things found in our catechism on Lord's Day 3. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is God's holy word. Give your attention to its reading. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And if you would go over to chapter 3, we'll read the account of the fall of man. Man was created upright and good and knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And we read in Genesis 3, the fall of man. We'll read the entire chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty Then any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpents, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. I'll read Romans chapter 5 later in our sermon. For now, let's read the answers together of Lord's Day 3 of our catechism. I'll read the questions and we can read the answers together. Questions 6 through 8. We've just established that man has a natural tendency to hate God and his neighbor, to disobey the law. And so question six comes to us and says, did God create man so wicked and perverse? No, God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with him in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are born sinners, corrupt from conception on. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. There's a rhetorical technique in argumentation or presenting a thesis. Salesmen know this technique and they know it well. It's called anticipating objections. Anticipating objections. For instance, uh, a salesman will have to know when he's about to sort of get to the bottom line, the product he's trying to sell, he's going to name the price. And if he knows that the price he's going to to say is, is going to 
sting a little bit to the person he's making a case to. He will anticipate the objection and give a reason for why that price ought not sting in the way it does. Think about what you're getting. Think about the way that this product is better than the other ones that we have already talked about. Anticipating the objection. Lord's Day 3 of our catechism anticipates the objection that could arise in the minds of the readers, the conclusions that are given from the first two Lord's Days. The second half of Lord's Day 1 speaks of the greatness of our sin and misery. What must you know to live and die in the comfort of Jesus Christ? Three things, and then one of those things is how great our sin and our misery are. Lord's Day 2 tells us that we are imprisoned, in a sense, in that sin and misery because our very nature is incapable of rendering any true obedience to God, true, complete spiritual obedience of body and mind and soul. In other words, we're prone by nature to disobey, to hate God and neighbor. So an insightful person might say, well, In that case, I'm freed from responsibility. Because if I'm prone by nature to disobey God, well, I didn't create my nature. I'm not responsible for the existence of my nature. So the fault must lie with the one who has created my nature. If my nature is to blame, then the creator of my nature is to blame for my sin. Lord's Day 3 anticipates that Objection. Right from the start, question six. So did God create man so wicked and perverse? It goes back to the beginning to say, let's think about the nature of mankind from the beginning. And that's uh, really an extremely important uh, truth for us to to camp out on, to think about tonight uh, as we understand a reformed view of scripture and salvation. It all comes down to the fall of man. It all comes down to the fall of man. God is sovereign, but he is not the author of sin. Reformed confessions and catechisms say it very clearly. Is God sovereign and in control? Yes. Are all things shaped by his decree? Yes. Is God the author of sin? No. God is sovereign. Isaiah 44. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. This is God, in a sense, challenging the false gods of the the, the pagan nations and the pagan peoples, saying, if they are God or if they are gods, let them tell me what is to come. That's the litmus test for whether or not you are God. Do you know what is to come? God says, I know what is to come. I have decreed all things. But even still, God is not the author of sin. People say, well, if God is truly sovereign, if he's in control, then surely he has to take responsibility for all of the evil and all of the ugliness in the world. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. God is of purer eyes than to see evil and to look at wrong. He is so holy and so righteous that he is not associated in any sense with sin and evil and wickedness. Surely there's mystery to these truths, the sovereignty of God and the fact that God is not the author of sin. But clearly, uh, Scripture teaches us these things, and so we confess them. We confess them. 
A Roman Catholic view of things puts all things under the, the umbrella of nature and grace. That is that the grace of God perfects our nature. There's something insufficient in the created nature of mankind. Reformed view puts everything under the umbrella of sin and grace. It's not nature and grace, it's fallen nature and God's grace acting upon our fallen nature to save sinners. And so, in other words, it it all comes down to the fall. The fall of Genesis 3 is foundational to our worldview, foundational for the way that we read scripture, foundational for how we view ourselves and how we view the activity of God in his grace. If you don't get this first story right, creation and the fall, the rest of human history will not come together in a biblical way. The fall teaches us our culpability. It teaches us about God's justice, but it also teaches us about God's mercy and his desire to save. Let's consider all of these things together. First, as we begin, just very briefly, a couple things on the image of God. Many things that we could see and study about the image of God, read about it in Genesis chapter 1. We see how the image of God naturally flows into the call upon human beings to rule. Uh, let us make man in our image, God says, and, and let them rule. Let them have dominion over all things. Really, ethically, what we're talking about uh, when we talk about the image of God is that uh, human beings, human creatures, are to reflect their creator. We are to be reflections of him. That's what we were called to do right from the beginning, to reflect God to reflect his holiness, to reflect his rule, his ethical character, all that we find in him. You know, it's interesting, human beings have astounding capabilities of reflection, don't they? Reflecting that which they see, reflecting that which is around them. One of my favorite things to do when I am home in the evening is to watch my four-year-old and my two-year-old daughters and watch the ways in which they emulate their mother. They're pretending to talk on the phone. I was actually talking to a couple people this morning after our, our service. And to listen to the ways that they use the same kinds of phrases that their mother uses when they're pretending to talk on the phone. I hope I don't uh, disparage my wife, who's not here to defend herself, taking care of the newborn. She especially likes to, to receive a shoulder rub at the end of the day when she's been holding the baby. Uh, for many long hours, and so uh, when I am feeling that it's my duty to help her out, then sometimes I'll do that in the evenings. And the other night, I was putting our four-year-old to bed, and uh, sometimes, you know, my my wife asks for these shoulder rubs in interesting ways. And uh, as I'm putting Sophia to bed, and Sophia, I'm walking out of the bedroom, and she asks, she says, Daddy, come give me a shoulder rub. And I'm thinking, where else did she learn that but from her mother? We have unbelievable capabilities of reflection. Intuitively, we know as parents or grandparents or those who watch young ones, we know intuitively that keeping bad company is a very bad idea for young people. We don't want our kids or the kids in our lives to make the wrong kinds of friends. We We want to be gracious and loving and open with people. We want to be the kinds of people who influence people in our lives for the good. But we intuitively know that if you do nothing but hang around the wrong kind of person, 
That's going to have a negative effect on you. All of this speaks about uh, our innate capability of reflection because we're made in the image of God. Ultimately, we were created to reflect our creator, our God. We're made in his image. We're made in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. We were created upright. And the reason I mention that is because uh, the image of God, something that we have to understand about the image of God and rendering thankful service to God is that once human nature is fallen, we're completely cut off from being able to render true good works to God in and of ourselves. Why? Because human beings are mind, body, and soul all together, and all of those things have to be united in service to God. It's not just bare obedience, outward obedience that God would be pleased with. He wants his creatures to render obedience to him, mind, body, and soul, to be caught up in fellowship with him as we render thankful obedience, to give him worship and service and praise and adoration, all of those things together. And that is why, once we are cut off from true fellowship with God in the fall, uh, we are not able to render good works in and of ourselves to God. We're made in his image. Genesis 3 tells us about the fall of man. We need to understand this story. We need to recount this story in order that we might know the greatness of God and our own natures. It's interesting in those first seven or eight verses of Genesis chapter three, the, the, the subtle shifts that are going on. The first stage of the temptation, there's a, a subtle challenge that's given to the word of God. Uh, one thing that's interesting about this encounter is that Satan... Uh, The devil had to approach and encounter Adam and Eve purely from the outside. A fallen nature has sinful desires that can arise from within. We read about that in James chapter 1. This is a very unique encounter because uh, the, the devil had to act upon Adam and Eve purely from the outside. There's mystery around this encounter as well. Why, is, why does he take the form of a serpent? Why is the serpent called more crafty than every, every other creature in God's animal kingdom? Does the serpent have some active role or is it just purely uh, Satan presenting himself as a serpent? These are mysterious things. We can't delve too deeply in all of those things. The, the text teaches us so much more. The serpent also aims to, to overturn the order of the cosmos. Genesis 1, what's, what is the, the sense that we get? Is that God is a God of order. He is a God who understands the world that he is making. He is giving it an order. He's giving it a hierarchy. He wants it uh, to stay the way that he has created it. With that order, Satan seeks to turn that on its head by overturning the first family, doesn't he? He goes not to the man who is the federal head of all mankind. He goes to his wife. It's not necessarily so that Eve was more inclined to sin. But the devil seeks this uh, to turn this relationship upside down. That was the opportunity that he saw to approach the woman and not the man. First, there is a subtle challenge to the word of God. The devil says, did God really 
say? Did he really say? See, all sin ultimately is an attack on God's word, isn't it? All sin and the way that sinful fallen minds think about sin when we are dealing with temptation, it's all a temptation to see that there's really no sense to obeying God. It doesn't make sense to obey God or to obey his word. That's what the devil is trying to show Eve in this temptation. Did God say that you are not to eat from any tree in the garden? Now think about what that does in the mind of the one who hears it. By pointing out that God did not outlaw all of the trees. There's an idea that's implanted in the mind of the woman that perhaps eating of any tree is okay. Has God really said that you can't eat from any of the trees? Well, no, 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 he hasn't said that, he hasn't said that. But then all of a sudden in the mind, it's, well, maybe then it's okay to eat from any of the trees. The same kind of thing is at work in our world today. Has God really said that, that all sexual activity is bad? Well, no, he has blessed it in the marriage union between a man and a woman. That exclusive relationship that he has given to mankind. But you see, when people think about it in that way, all of a sudden this twisted idea is introduced into your mind that, well, maybe it's okay to do a whole host of things. Maybe it's not sinful to veer off the path this way or that. All sin is a challenge to God's word. It's a challenge to his authority. When you see the kind of thinking that goes on in the fall of man in Genesis 3, you see and you understand what's going on in our world today. The heart of the woman is prepared. The heart of Eve is prepared here for thinking that perhaps it's a good thing to violate God's word. Perhaps it'll be a good thing to go her own way. As she's responding to the serpent, what does she do? So first we have a subtle challenge, then we have an addition to the word of God. Eve adds to the words of God, doesn't she? She says, neither shall you touch it. God has said, don't eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, neither shall you touch it. Now that's never been said by God. She's perhaps emphasizing, you see how it's going step by step, she's emphasizing the absurdity, perhaps, of keeping them away from any of the trees. I was talking with someone this past week, and we have a a mutual friend who has grown, who grew up in the church and has left the faith and has now, is now of a, a lifestyle that we would recognize as ex- extremely sinful through and through. And the way that this young man talks about his upbringing is such that uh, he looks upon it with disdain because he thinks it was so sheltered and so conservative and so completely run through with all of these crazy biblical ideas. The funny thing is, I know that young man's brother, who is a pastor friend of mine, and he looks back at the same upbringing and he says, you know, really, our parents didn't challenge us sufficiently from the word of God. They let way too much slide. And so you have uh, two different perspectives looking back upon that upbringing. But it's amazing to see the first young man, the way that he is uh, justifying his lifestyle as he looks back on his childhood and he says, it was absurd the kinds of things that my parents would have us do, trying to self-justify 
what he has chosen to do. And so as Eve adds to the word of God, then what happens? There's another stage. The serpent responds and now God's word is going to be outright flatly contradicted, isn't it? Well, you will not surely die. Well, surely you're not going to die. Whatever God has said he's going to bring your way, that's not going to happen. Verses 4 and 5. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I read something wonderful this week. It said, once you are ready to question the word of God, once you are ready To call the word of God a lie, you are already denying it. You are already denying its authority. If you do not obey the word of God unconditionally, you will not obey it. In our post-fall sinful hearts, we have about three to maybe five seconds to deal with these kinds of challenges to God's authority that arise in our hearts. Otherwise, so often they take root. And you see how activity follows. You see what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3. It all comes down to the authority that God has. The right that God has to tell us what is right and wrong. And whether or not his creatures will obey it. We see how it all comes unraveled here. So in verse 6 of Genesis 3. Listen to how... What's described in Genesis 3, 6, how it has nothing to do with a person who is submitting to the authority of of the word of God, who is believing what God has told her to believe, who is reasoning the way that God has told her to reason. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now it's not good for food, but she saw it, and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the the tree was to be desired to make one wise. All lies, but she sees them. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. She ceases to revert to God's word. It's all about the judgment that she passes on it. The kind of life that she wants to live. The kind of path down which she wants to walk. You see already at this point, this first moment of the fall of man, what do you see? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of these things, 1 John 2 says, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. This is an enormous event in world history. It's the creatures of God, created in knowledge and righteousness and holiness, directly defying their creator, telling him that they want to go their own way. We've seen that proliferate throughout our world, haven't we? We see it every day. My life is my own. I can express myself whatever way I choose. I can go down whatever path I want. I read a heartbreaking story uh, just, just this afternoon as I was studying for this sermon. Heartbreaking story about fully grown adult who had a wonderful family and because he or she felt led to go down a certain path, family was ripped apart and all of this was given to us in an article where it's being justified. This was a good thing that this person did because they had to follow their hearts. We see it proliferated. 
We see the results that scripture tells us about. In Romans 5 verse 12 it says this. Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. The apostle Paul teaches us there that Adam was acting as a a federal head. In Adam's fall sinned we all. We read Genesis 3 and we said, well, it was mainly Eve and the serpent in that interaction. But we read that Adam was there. Some people may say, well, this is unfair. Not only is it unfair that, that Adam has the guilt of that sin imputed to him, but that through him the guilt of Adam's sin goes throughout all of the world, that the human race is rendered guilty. Has that ever arisen in your heart? You say, well, that's not fair that Adam acts as a federal head. What's going on when our hearts cry out, that's not fair? It's the same kind of challenging to God's word that we read about in Genesis 3. We need to confront ourselves with the reality that this is God's world. And God calls it like he sees it. God is always just. He is always right. He is always righteous. So there's a judicial result to the fall. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, the entire human race is rendered guilty. But what our catechism focuses on more is the organic result. That all of us are conceived and born in sin and our nature is imprisoned in this um, inability to render thankfulness to God. Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 14, the Lord looks down out of heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The words of Jesus. Jesus is championed in our culture as one who is always accepting, inclusive. Jesus says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Our catechism says we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined toward all wickedness. Wholly incapable. As we talked about the image of God, we're wholly incapable of doing any good because even if we could render some sense of outward obedience to God's law, we have been spiritually cut off from fellowship with God. Our natures are are fallen. We're cut off from true communion with God, signified to us as, as man was banished from the Garden of Eden. So we cannot perform any truly good works. Moreover, we're inclined towards all sin. We have a a bent towards sin because of our fallenness. It's the rule. It is the norm. It's not the exception. But we ask then, does total depravity mean that we are as bad or as evil as we possibly could be? Well, no. God restrains evil in the world, doesn't he? He restrains evil through Many things, but three things that we'll name tonight. First, God restrains evil in the world through conscience. The law of God is written on the hearts of every man. So in some sense, goodness and justice is known by all people. A sense of the right and the wrong. But this does not mean that people naturally are doing that which is 
totally good, wholly good before God. We need to keep that distinction in our minds. Just because all people know some sense of right and wrong, it does not mean that they can render unto God good works the way that God demands them. This is a crude analogy, but it's a bit like uh, playing in the minor leagues. There's some sense of goodness in all people. And you can have good neighbors that don't know the Lord. You can run across good judges in the world who perhaps are not Christians, don't know the Lord, and they can render true judgments. Good uh, law enforcement people who do good. One of my, my best favorite examples of this is September 11th, 2001. I'm a sophomore in high school then. And you're watching these firemen in New York City And these first responders, brave men and women who were going into the the face of danger. They had lives to live. They had families. Many of them running to their death to try and save some. There's something in the heart of man that knows something about justice and goodness, isn't there? But it's kind of like playing in the minor leagues. If you play in double-A ball or triple-A ball. You're never going to get a hit in the major leagues. And if that's your goal, you're never going to achieve your goal unless you finally reach that highest level. In a similar way, like I said, it's crude. It breaks down in some sense. But rendering good works unto God can never happen with the man who is only natural and not spiritual. But God restrains evil through conscience. He restrains evil through family. Through family. There are fathers in this world who are at least in some sense decent men, even if they don't know the Lord. Being raised under a decent man is going to have enormous effects uh, for those who come after him. God restrains evil in that way. He restrains sin in that way. God restrains sin, finally, through civil authorities, through government, through the threat of the sword, through the threat of imprisonment. All of these things let us know that the world is not as bad as it possibly could be. But the world is bad, isn't it? And we are bad. We are sinful. We look and we read this account of Genesis chapter 3 and our hearts ought to break. I was there. When Adam sinned. I've done the same thing. That's the thing about Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. Well all sinned in Adam. But you know what's interesting. Is that each and every one of us. Have confirmed that judgment rendered upon us. None of us would want. The worst of what we've done. Aired for everybody to see. We've all confirmed that judgment. That ought to break our hearts. We sin against God in thought and in word and in deed. But we read about a hope, don't we? We read about a hope. Left to ourselves, it is hopelessness. But God is a God who loves to show mercy. Even in Genesis chapter 3, we have there the first preaching of the gospel, don't we? Genesis three fifteen. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says, I'm going to send a redeemer. 
I'm going to send one who's going to make this right. The wonderful thing to rejoice in, brothers and sisters, is that God did not want to create a situation where we would be right back where Eve was, able to sin, able not to sin. God said, my plan is that I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to accomplish redemption myself. Signified for us in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve have tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and God gives them skins. He sows them a better covering because in and of ourselves we could never cover our shame before God. God must cover us. And so the promise of the gospel is that I will accomplish redemption. There is wrath upon the world, yes, but God has sent his son to bear his own wrath, to give us a declaration of righteousness. We don't want to be in one of those situations like Eve where it could go either way. We don't want to be placed back in the Garden of Eden where we have to face the serpent again. What do we need? A redeemer who faced temptation in the desert who went down to Egypt and came back up. A savior who came and who lived and who died for us, that his work might be presented before the father. And the father might look upon the son and look upon all those who were in the son, united to him and say, you are not guilty. You are righteous. You are not cursed. You do not have any more my wrath and my enmity upon you. You are washed clean. You are cleansed. You see, from the fall comes hope. Without thinking about the fall, without thinking about that judgment that's rendered upon us, where would our thankfulness be? If we do not take time to remind ourselves of the guilt that we bear as being in Adam, then how would we find the time to thank God for what he says in Psalm 103? His mercy is as high as the heavens. Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. This is a God who delights in steadfast love. He does not wink at sin. He must deal with it. He does not let it pass by. He had to render a judgment upon Adam and upon Eve. But even in the midst of that judgment, he gives us hope. He gives us a promise. He says, I will send one who will accomplish redemption for you. Trust. Trust in the work of the Son. Who presents his work before the Father. That even in the midst of the sin and the misery in which we are imprisoned in and of ourselves. That God gives a savior who saves us from all sin. That we might be declared righteous. And that declaration would never be taken away. Result of the fall, sin and death. The hope of Christ, righteousness and life. Look to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we ask that you would impress the truth of your word upon our hearts. We ask that uh, even as we consider these things, which 
oftentimes are hard for us to think about, not necessarily enjoyable to think about the depth of our own sin and depravity, that we would rejoice to see our Savior, that we would rejoice to see your grace and your mercy. Strengthen us as we go out into the week. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We give our lives into your hands and we entrust all of it to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.